Well, good morning, church. Take your Bibles, turn again to John chapter 3. Thank you, Brent. Good job. Appreciate you singing for us this morning. John chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. Let me begin this morning by asking you a question. Who is the most difficult person to reach with the gospel? Who is it that has the most difficulty understanding their need to be saved? Well, the gospels make it clear that it is not the notoriously sinful person, but it is the person who is morally upright and who believes his or her good life will suffice. The gospel is full of accounts of corrupt tax collectors, prostitutes, and all manner of sinners coming to be saved. They didn't have any problem comprehending that they were sinners and that they needed to be saved and that they could not save themselves. But the religious crowd, they were the ones who opposed Jesus and they are the ones who eventually crucified him. They were blind to their own sin and self-righteousness. A few years ago, I read a newspaper account of a speech given by the president of a well-known university to a group of influential businessmen and civic leaders. The president told of a recent experience which he had and that he and his audience and the newspaper reporter who was there found very humorous. The president was shopping through the Christmas season and he happened by one of those Salvation Army volunteers. You know, the one standing on the corner with the little kettle ringing the bell. And as he paused to make a donation, the woman volunteer looked at him and asked this educator, Sir, are you saved? When he replied that he supposed that he was She was not satisfied, and so she pursued the matter a little further. She said, I mean, have you ever given your life completely to the Lord? At this point, the president told his audience that he thought he should enlighten this persistent woman concerning his true identity. He said, I am president of such and such university, And as such, I am the president of its school of theology. The lady considered his response for a few moments, and then she replied, Well, it doesn't matter wherever you've been or whatever you've done, you can still be saved. The tragic part is the college president, the university president, and his audience thought the story was very humorous. It's not hard to imagine this morning that if our central character from our text this morning, Nicodemus, was to meet the Salvation Army lady just like the president of that university, he would have thought the same thing about himself. The story of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is found only here in the New Testament, John chapter 3, but it is more than the record of a 2,000-year-old conversation. It is the answer to the most profound theological question 
of all time. And that question is, how does one get to heaven? In this text, a man approaches Jesus late one night. His name is Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness to ask the question, the one that all of his religious rule-keeping could not answer. Verse number one, we read, and there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. In order to understand this story, there are three things that we need to understand about Nicodemus. First of all, it says, not only tells us his name, but it tells us that he was a Pharisee. Christians today do not have a very good opinion of Pharisees. We don't think very highly of Pharisees because of Jesus' criticism of some of their self-righteous hypocrisy. But in the days of Jesus, you need to understand that the Pharisees were a very much respected group. They were, in fact, respected for their knowledge of the Old Testament scripture. They were the theological conservatives of their day. They believed that the Old Testament was the revealed word of God, which contained an inspired code of ethics which should be practiced literally. This was such a demanding life that there were never more than a few thousand Pharisees at any time in Israel. Secondly, you need to note about Nicodemus that he was not only a Pharisee, but he was a very important man. It says he is called the ruler of the Jews. From what we read about Nicodemus in John chapter 7, we can conclude with some confidence that Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish legal court in the land. This was a a select group of 70 men who served as the highest Jewish court in the country. It would be comparable to our present day Supreme Court justice. Third, it also tells us that he was the teacher of Israel. Notice the definite article there. It does not say he is a teacher of Israel. It says that he is the teacher of Israel. The meaning seeming to be that Nicodemus was probably the most popular religious teacher in Israel at the time. If you want one word... that could describe Nicodemus, it would be he was good. He was a good man. In fact, he was more than a good man. He was a very good man. If the Jewish religious system could pick one man to be its representative, they could have not picked a better man than Nicodemus. But as good as he was, he still had a nagging question that bothered him that he could never find a relief from from all his religious rule-keeping. 
So he comes to Jesus to ask his question. In my imagination, I see Nicodemus watching in the shadows as Jesus has done his work. He's preaching and teaching and healing, and Nicodemus is watching. Nicodemus saw something in Jesus that all his religious rule-keeping had not provided him. He saw God's power being poured out through Jesus. So he comes to Jesus to ask the questions because he senses that Jesus has the truth from God. Now the core of what Nicodemus wanted to know was Jesus is my goodness good enough to get me into heaven? Is my goodness good enough to make me acceptable to a holy God? Is my goodness good enough to get me in? Well, that question is still being asked by people all around the world. And the answer is the same that Nicodemus got. Jesus answered Nicodemus that no, his goodness is not good enough to get him into heaven. No amount of goodness is good enough to establish a relationship with God or to get us into heaven. When it comes to getting into heaven, it doesn't matter how many good works we are able to perform It doesn't matter how much money we have given to Christian causes, how many church services we've attended, how much we read our Bible, or how many underprivileged children we support. No one gets to heaven by being a good person. Nicodemus had devoted his life to being a good man, trying to live up to the standards that his religion said to him, He had to meet in order to please God and to win a place in heaven. And quite frankly, he did it relatively well, better than most. He was a very good person. But he comes to Jesus pointing at his goodness and asking, is it good enough? And Jesus says, with compassion, no. No man can get into heaven by being good. Because no one can ever be good enough to pay for their sins. You're going to have to go about it another way. What we find in this conversation reveals three things about the new birth. First of all, the new birth is a necessity. Nicodemus really never voiced his question. But he had a problem that needed an answer. In verse 3, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus establishes the importance of what he's about to say by the formula that is translated most assuredly in some of your Bibles. Others of you have truly, truly, or as it is in the King James Version, verily, verily. Whatever the formula they use, it means that what is about to follow is so important that you need to pay careful attention, and then you need to put it into practice. This is even more so important because we see that this formula is 
repeated twice in this text, verse 5 and verse 11. Not only that, he tells us what is important. He says, unless, unless, you might underline that word in your Bible or whatever word you have in its place in your translation, unless or except one is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. The word that is translated unless or except is an imperative. That means it's a command. It means that a person has no other choice except this choice if they wish to be saved. You either come God's way or you don't come. John chapter four, or Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, Neither is there any other name given under heaven among men whereby you must be saved. We would have to say that Nicodemus is really the cream of the crop. He's a Jew, chosen race. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a highly respected teacher of the Old Testament. Can you imagine being Nicodemus and being told by Jesus that all that you have is still not enough to please God? With one sentence, Jesus sweeps away everything that Nicodemus stood for. And he demands that he be remade by the power of God. Jesus is literally turning Nicodemus' life upside down. He has never heard any such thing in his whole life. He has understood that one gets to heaven by keeping the law. This means that everything that Nicodemus has done in his life up to this point is absolutely worthless as far as getting him into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells this remarkably good man, if you want to get to heaven, if you want a relationship with God that begins now and goes through eternity, then you're going to have to go about it a totally different way. You are going to have to be born again. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can't do it, Nicodemus, but God can. He can transform you from the inside out. And he can make you good enough. And he wants to do that for you if only you will allow him to do so. To understand that, we have to come to grips with that phrase, born again. Again here is a word that has a double meaning. It can either mean again or above. And I think in this case, both meanings apply. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that the only way to find what he's looking for is to be born again from above. That's the only way. Not only does Jesus tell Nicodemus about the necessity of being born again, notice secondly, The new birth is a supernatural work of God. Nicodemus' response in verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? To me, Nicodemus' response is a little bit surprising. 
in that Jesus obviously was not referring to a man being physically born a second time. And a man as educated as Nicodemus was hardly would have thought that he was talking about that. So Nicodemus' question is either cynical, well, it's hardly possible that a man be born again, or it's wistful. Is it really possible for a man to begin again? If the words of Jesus are understood with that cynicism, then you can just put them aside as something that's not even possible. But it is more likely that Nicodemus is saying another chance, starting over, a chance for a new life, if only that were possible, if only that were possible. But that is exactly what Jesus is saying. I have to stop and say in our day and age, the term born again has been nearly stripped of all its meaning because it can mean anything or nothing in our day. But when Jesus uttered these words, they were radical and new. Look at verse number five. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water, And the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. This verse has been much misinterpreted. To quote one of the old commentaries on this, he says, certainly Jesus was not saying that baptism was necessary to salvation. Baptism is an outward thing and conversion is an inward thing of the heart. A man can be baptized many times, but the water will not wash away a single sin nor admit him to heaven. If baptism is necessary to salvation, then no one was saved before John the Baptist because baptism was not mentioned in the Old Testament. Am I minimizing the importance of baptism? Certainly not. I'm simply saying that baptism has nothing to do with salvation. But baptism has everything to do with obedience. You can be a Christian without baptism, but you cannot be an obedient Christian without baptism. So what did Jesus mean by saying you must be born of the water and of the spirit? Well, throughout the New Testament, the term water is used to indicate the word of God. One example is in 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. How is anyone saved? Well, all you have to do to understand this really is if you are saved, review your salvation. How did you get saved? Was it not because the word of God got a hold of you and changed you? Well, note that being born again is universal. Verse 7, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus makes it very clear that what he's saying applies not only to Nicodemus, but to everyone. 
In Greek, there is a distinction between a singular and a plural form of you. When Jesus says, you must be born again, he uses the plural form. It's really easier to see in the Old King James Version, where it says, marvel not that I say unto thee, singular, talking to Nicodemus, that ye, plural, everyone, must be born again. The point is, this is not a private principle that only applies to Nicodemus, but applies to everyone. And then being born again is not an option. We also need to note the use of the strong word, must. Jesus is not saying that being born again is just a good idea for some people. It is something he is, not just something that he's recommending, it's an imperative. In the early 1700s, there's a 21-year-old Oxford student who realized his sinful and wicked life needed to be reformed. So he resolved to change. He denied himself every luxury. He wore ragged clothes. He ate no food except those that were repugnant to him. I guess that's broccoli and things like that, asparagus. He fasted twice a week. He gave his money to the poor. He spent whole nights in prayer laying prostrate on the cold stone floor or on the wet grass. And yet he felt like he was putting a coat of paint on rotten wood. His outward deeds only hid his inward corruption. And then his good friend, Charles Wesley, gave him a book written by one of the Puritans. And through reading this book, he came to understand that he needed to be born again. He said of that experience, oh, what joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory when I was filled, when the weight of my sin left me and I had an abiding sense of the pardoning power of God. George Whitfield was his name. His, fra- his favorite scripture became John 3.3. 3. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He went on to preach that more than 18,000 sermons often on the text of John 3, 3. Sometimes in the outdoors to crowds of over 20,000 people without any kind of sound system whatsoever. He made many trips to America in which he was used by God in the first great awakening. One of his final sermons, he said, I am now 55 years of age and I tell you I am ever more convinced the truth that the new birth is a revelation of God himself and without it, you can never be saved. A friend asked him one day, why do you preach so often on the text, you must be born again? He simply replied, looking full into the man's face, because you must be born again. Third, the new birth is revealed by its effects. Being born again is a mystery. Verse 8, Jesus gives Nicodemus an example of the mystery of the new birth by comparing it to wind. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from 
and where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We accept all kinds of earthly mysteries by faith. I really still don't understand how a man can stand in a studio in New York City and sing a song and I can see his image on my television and I can hear his voice. I don't understand how that works. I bet you don't either. And yet you accept it by faith. There are a lot of things in life that we just accept by faith. We don't understand completely how they work, but we accept that they do. If we're able to believe things that we don't completely understand on earth, then why are we not willing to accept heavenly truths by faith? Nicodemus asked once again in verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus counters by answering, by saying, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I told you heavenly things? For no one has ascended to heaven but he who came from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he, that is Jesus, alone can convey what heaven is like. For he alone has been to heaven and returned. It ultimately becomes a matter of belief. Jesus is asking, Nicodemus, are you ready to place your faith and trust in me? So, did Nicodemus ever get saved? We don't know from this text, but I think he did. You say, why do you think that? Well, because Nicodemus stood up before the whole Sanhedrin in John chapter 7 and defended Jesus. And after Jesus had died on the cross, Nicodemus went together with Joseph of Arimathea to body, to bury the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. So I believe he did. Let me just close with one final thought this morning. If we could go out to the highway this morning and just stop vehicle after vehicle and we asked them, give me one good reason why you should go to heaven. What do you think we would hear? What kind of answers could we expect from that question? Are you going to heaven? Well, they're fairly predictable. There are a variety of answers. Some would say, well, I hope so. Some would say, I'm trying. Some would say, well, I'm doing the best I can. Some would say, yes, because I've been baptized in such and such a church. Or others might say, yes, because I'm a member of such and such a church. None of them would be right. The question, are you going to heaven? And if so, why? Is without a doubt the most important question your mind will ever entertain. The reason this is such an important question is obvious. There is one, only one alternative to heaven. You have been designed an eternal being. You are going to spend eternity somewhere. And there are only two places that God has designed. There is hell, the place the Bible calls outer darkness, where 
There will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth where we are told the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and they have no rest day or night. And there is heaven, but there's nothing in between. God says in his word that all men and women must appear before him in death. They will be divided by the great shepherd. The sheep and the goats, one into everlasting punishment, one into everlasting contentment and glory. And we decide here where we're going to spend eternity. Let's pray. Lord, I certainly don't pretend to know this morning whether each person here is born again or not. I suspect that there might be someone that's not. I pray that you'd help them understand this morning that they could settle that matter today. They could leave here today knowing that they're saved by simply using this time to turn to you, admit they're sinners, repent of that sin, and ask to receive what Jesus has done for them on the cross of Calvary. Others just need to be reminded of what you did for them, the price that you paid for their salvation, that they should never take it lightly, that we should live for you in the light of the eternity that stands before us. Whatever you want to do in our hearts and lives this morning, we want to turn this time over to you, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to have an invitation. James is going to be here. If you're here this morning, you have some decision that you need to make. Decision about church membership.